Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and today our guest is Professor Mirju Rai. An associate professor in the History Department at Yale, Professor Rai's doctoral research focused on the problems of religion, politics, and protest in modern Kashmir. It culminated in her book, Hindu Rulers, Muslim Subjects, Islam Rights, and the History of Kashmir. She is here to talk with us today about her new research in the region of Bihar, India, that explores the relationships between caste, territory, region, and nation as they evolved from the period of British colonial rule into the post-colonial era. Welcome, Professor Rai. Thank you very much for having me here. So in your newest uh, book, which you are currently in the process of writing, you look at the caste system in India, specifically in the region of Bihar. Mm -hmm. What is caste? An interesting question, a very broad question. Um, the term caste itself is, has no uh, Indian origin. It's derived from the Portuguese term casta. And yet, of course, the phenomenon of caste is very Indian. Uh, it, it's marked as one of the essences, uh, according to some writers, of Indian society itself. Um, the phenomenon of caste uh, derives um, literally uh, from ancient times in India itself. Um, a verse in the ancient text, the Rig Veda, composed in roughly 1200 BC, mentions the division of society along four lines and a hierarchical division of society that had Brahmins, the priestly or sacerdotal classes, at the top, the Kshatriyas, the warrior caste, a second in rank, the Vaishyas, those producing the wealth of society, merchant groups, um, richer landowning groups, third in rank, and then a category called Shudras, uh, sort of providing menial labor as fourth in rank. Um, eventually, through the history of India, a, f a fifth category was added, namely that of the untouchables, quote unquote. Um, who, um, again, the origins of untouchability and these untouchable groups is uh, varied and, and uh, not fully explained in the history. But um, these five divisions, in fact, simply form the theoretical peg against which another category must be added, that of jati. Jati literally means birth. And when Indians talk about caste, they actually allude to that concept of jati. And by some surveys, um, there are about 3,000 jatis in India. And they seem to be pegged in various ways against this uh, four and then five-fold division uh, along the lines of caste. What is important to remember is that, of course, um, um, these are not set uh, categories. Um, they're not deprived of history that over the centuries of the existence of these categories, uh, there's been a great deal of mobility both upwards and downwards. However, if we look at caste in the early 21st century, it certainly represents a certain, uh, a very distinct sort of hierarchical division, certainly amongst Hindus, uh, but caste has actually had this strange sort of effect of uh, permeating into different religious groups and religious communities that have existed in the subcontinent as well. So in India, you could even think of Brahman Christians 
and Shudra Christians. Um, Islam, which is um, such an egalitarian religion, also in, its, uh, in the social existence of Muslim communities, displays some of these, these notions of hierarchical ranking. Mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, it's, it's um, caste, as we understand it today, is literally a certain kind of hierarchical ranking that, that seems peculiar. Um, to the uh, South Asian subcontinent. It doesn't match up with categories of class. Uh, mobility has become more restricted. And um, that, that sort of uh, um, removal of flexibility within caste de is dated to the more modern period of India's history. Mm -hmm. And what drew you to this topic? Um, again, uh, you know, as I said, um, this is a highly hierarchical system. And some of the hierarchies are, are maintained through extreme violence. In, in contemporary India, uh, for instance, the, the subordination that is subjected, uh, that is uh, to which lower caste groups are subjected, is, is violent. It's, it's, it's shockingly violent, uh, but yet is commented upon very rarely. Uh, we're more used to, especially sitting in the West, we're more used to thinking about the Indian subcontinent in terms of the more uh, usual rivalry, sorry, along um, religious lines, Hindu versus Muslim, or national lines, India versus Pakistan, um, Sinhala versus Tamil, linguistic regional lines. Caste is, is, um, uh, is addressed as the essence of India, but not discussed enough, I think. Um, there is a quotidian kind of violence that characterizes the operation of caste itself. And this is despite the fact that the Indian Constitution uh, enacted finally in 1950, framed and given to the people of India in 1949, abolished untouchability through various articles. It abolished the principle of discrimination along the lines of caste. So in principle, the state in India does not recognize caste. And yet the history of India has shown that caste, far from fading away, has returned to the fold uh, of politics in India itself. And those politics um, um, have produced remarkable results. I mean, we have in the, the most populous state of India, the state of Uttar Pradesh, we have a woman uh, chief minister. First of all, uh, gender, in terms of gender itself, this is a remarkable change. But she's also, I mean, again, South Asia, the subcontinent is f familiar with sort of women in power. But this is a woman who comes from, in fact, the most subordinated groups from, in fact, an untouchable group. Uh, and yet, the violence along caste lines, the daily brutalities that are meted out to, to people along the sort of the lower rungs of this hierarchy that still exists, is not acknowledged often enough. So for me, uh, you know, um, the, 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 I remember hearing that almost 18,000 people died Dalits, um, untouchable, subordinated groups died and violence meted out to them in just the space of a decade was, was shocking enough, and um, yet that it wasn't recognized. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about your book. What is uh, the premise? Um, okay. I'm, I'm a historian, and I'm trying to navigate, actually, uh, 
um, between uh, <laughs> um, sort of enormously weighty um, um, scholarship. I would summarize the sort of uh, the debates within that scholarship along um, as separated along two very broadly put lines. Um, one school of thought that uh, says that well, um, caste of course existed before the British arrived in India, but colonial rule turned it into a system. That it um, that you know the, the mechanisms of establishing colonial rule through um, institutions like taking the census on a decennial basis, um, through sort of um, making available political power along lines of caste and religious belonging, sort of uh, turned what was a much more variegated system, a much more variegated phenomenon rather, into a system that begins to apply on the all India sort of uh, landscape, as it were. And then there's another body of scholarship, equally weighty, equally important, that says, well, uh, certainly British rule um, changed some of the premises within which uh, caste began to function as a system, but the colonial state certainly did not invent caste. Um, that in fact it predated the arrival of the British. I'm trying to navigate my way between these very, very sort of um, uh, uh, serious blocks of scholarship, if I may use um, a, a shorthand. Um, for me, I think at, at, at after a point, uh, it matters little who invented caste into a system. What is interesting to me is that uh, is to find out how it's experienced. What does it mean when you look beyond the colonial state? Um, it can be no one's argument that caste didn't exist before uh, the British arrived in India. And it can certainly be no one's argument that the British didn't actually transform all kinds of social imaginings, including that of caste. But, but how was it actually experienced? So for me, um, um, I want to move away from a line of thinking that still, I mean, no matter how how disparate and, and um, sort of oppositional these two perspectives might seem, both agree that something happens under colonial rule that changes uh, the way in which caste affects Indians. I take um, a line that says, well, yes, but um, you know, to understand caste, caste functions even as late as in the late 19th century when the colonial state has census in enumeration that makes caste into a reality. Even then, uh, um, what is changing is literally um, the spaces within which caste functions. Um, caste makes no sense outside of locality. I want to bring in this whole notion of uh, uh, ideas of mutuality and reciprocity, that caste always existed, I take as a premise. Uh, relations based along a hierarchy of caste always existed in localities. What changes is uh, the, the arena within which certainly caste domination has to be asserted through violence. I want to ask why you can, I mean, by the late 20th century, and certainly even 
earlier than that, by the early 20th century, why does it take violence to maintain caste? Well, for centuries, there was a quieter violence. I mean, I'm, I do not believe that caste was ever uh, a benevolent institution. That, that, you know, that caste is touched through and through by oppression is, is evident. That it is touched through and through by uh, subordination is evident. But how do we explain the fact that you know, today um, it takes the form of warfare? And I want to argue that, in fact, what is happening through the late 19th century is not so much a greater um, amplification of caste identities, that it's something else, that, in fact, caste identities always existed. What is happening is, in fact, perhaps a frag fragmentation of the localities, the communities within which caste had always demanded both mutuality and reciprocity, even in a system that is highly unequal, that it was possible for lower caste to say, wait, hang on, I call upon you to fulfill your duties. Something begins to change in, 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 uh, in actually societies throughout northern India through the late 19th century, whereby, in fact, upper castes don't have to maintain that pattern of mutuality, they function in a different arena. Okay. So um, why did you select the region of Bihar? Yes. Um, an easy answer would be, first of all, that I'm from Bihar, but that's too easy an answer uh, because my first work had nothing to do with Bihar. It had to do with Kashmir. Um, Bihar, well, I mean, part of the answer is indeed that I'm from Bihar. It's a, it's a question of uh, wanting to tap into a whole variety of sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the vernacular, in a sort of the more high standard Hindi uh, and Urdu that I can access. Uh, but most of all, because Bihar is deemed to be that signal region in the Indian subcontinent that is uh, wrecked and racked by caste violence. Um, even more tragically, I mean, um, thousands of deaths occur in Bihar along the lines, ostensibly in the name of caste violence, but it is deemed to be natural to be hard. Nobody's surprised by this. I speak to friends of mine and say, did you see that story in, uh, in Bihar? I mean, uh, upper caste just burned down the villages of, of you know, sort of um, at least two villages and beheaded 23 people. And, uh, you know, it shocked me to hear their reaction saying, yeah, well, Bihar, right? It happens in Bihar. Why are you so, so surprised by it? I wanted to investigate that. Bihar is deemed to be this province that has no regional identity, that, it's, uh, that any sense of commonality along the lines of region, language, constantly founders on the lines of caste. My first book, actually, um, on Kashmir, um, sort of, uh, um, explored a different dimension, saying, wait, in the case of Kashmir, people always talk about a regional identity that overcomes constantly in this miraculous way religious divisions, Hindu versus Muslim, all forgotten, until it goes sour. Bihar, on the other hand, is the opposite case. It's always spoken of as the opposite case. Um, that region that can, is incapable of a regional identity, where caste is overwhelming. So for me, in some ways, that was a point of curiosity that grew f literally from my first work.
Um, again, as I said, I mean, in Bihar, caste violence is deemed to be endemic. Uh, people don't use the term caste violence, they use the term caste warfare. And we're talking about uh, upper caste groups uh, with their own private armies uh, that, that sort of that are deployed uh, to, to extract the labor and services of lower caste or subordinated caste groups who resist that exploitation. Um, so that, that there's some legitimacy to using that term warfare if you're talking about armies. Uh, it, suddenly, caste seems to be the only sort of um, sort of characteristic of that province of Bihar, and I thought that would be a very good place to begin. And as I said, I mean, I, I come from there, and, and literally, uh, I thought it would be, um, and, and the questions are raised literally from my first work itself. Right. So. Okay. Um, let's talk uh, about your research. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some ideas of, of what you needed to do in terms of um, pulling information together and data? It was, it was, it's been an interesting experience. Um, as I said, uh, part of the temptation of working on Bihar was uh, the fact that you know, I actually had, uh, I have a thorough knowledge of the vernaculars mm -hmm. of the region. So I've had uh, an interesting time trying to move from um, uh, my training as a, as a historian that has so far allowed me to look at colonial sources. And those are available plentifully between the National Archives in New Delhi and the British Library's own sort of um, India Office Library um, archival material. I certainly use those. Um, I access those with, with, with great abandon and enjoy doing that. But this time I've been trying to sort of supplement that material with vernacular sources uh, such as poetry. And um, you know, especially if you're trying to retrieve a sense of how caste is experienced rather than that debate that I'd spoken about earlier in terms of, well, did the colonial state invent it or was there something that preceded it? Well, experiencing caste requires actually um, culling material produced by ideally <laughs> subordinated groups. But of course, you're talking about groups that don't leave a written record, but I've had enormous good luck in actually at least retrieving sort of, you know, a genre of, of, um, of poetry produced by, by migrant, migratory labor groups. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, Bihar sent out a fair section of its population outside of the state because it's such an impoverished state. Um, large numbers of men would, and women would leave. Um, to find work in, in Calcutta. So I've been using, oh, actually, uh, in, uh, they would be a, uh, you know, a former major section of the intelligent labor that was sent out to Fiji and Mauritius, etc. Some of them actually left records um, um, in the form of poetry, letters. I've been using those kinds of materials to actually try and call a sense of what it meant um, um, to feel the burden of Caste not as caste, but caste as a lived experience, uh, the exploitation, where, you know, where it is uh, that you might find justice. I, I, actually, my work literally is titled Geographies of Justice. It's actually, it's an attempt to retrieve those spaces, not geographical spaces necessarily, but those mental and geographical spaces where you are allowed to invoke a sense of justice to 
um, sort of um, uh, correct the wrongs that are visited upon you by this thing that we talk about so easily as the caste system itself. So, so it's been it's been a, a challenging bit of research, mm -hmm. but I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And in terms of your, the premise of your book, in mm -hmm. the end, what do you think your research will find? I think at the end of the day, um, uh, I hope to complicate this issue of um, you know how caste is thought about. Um, if you don't look at the localities within which caste functions, I mean, the Constitution of India, I think, in abolishing untouchability or abolishing discrimination along the lines of caste is, I mean, it was very right-headed. It, 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 I mean, the, the message was certainly one to be applauded, mm -hmm. but that's what is, you know, that, that's a message that comes on from on high. Um, how it gets implemented on the ground requires a certain understanding of how caste functions literally on the ground. And, and on the ground, I mean, no matter how much caste may have been constructed by the colonial state into a, an all India white system, I still find that actually caste is manifest in localities. I, I want to suggest that you know even if you take the the region of Bihar itself, um, that's that's too large to be a locality. But that's certainly bringing the debate down to a, a region. Within that region, I think if you begin to look at the way in which caste, um, actually, I mean, what went wrong is not the emphasis of caste, but uh, the breakdown in patterns of, of sort of uh, interrelationship that had placed caste groups in close social proximity to each other. That fragmenting of that proximity is, is I think, what allowed certain caste groups to, to meet violence on other caste groups. I hope that this research suggests that, you know, well, hang on, that, that's the way to begin to correct it. I mean, caste hasn't disappeared. <laughs> No matter what uh, you know, what the Indian Constitution says, no matter how that message is carried forth by by you know high-minded civil servants as they uh, conduct the business of the state in uh, you know, at the level of the small district and the village, it hasn't disappeared. It and it won't disappear simply by wishing it away. Uh, I hope that my my work sort of shows the sort of you know the 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 relationships the tiny but very vital relationships that both kept caste in together, again, always an unequal relationship, certainly. But the corrective is keeping them together, not, not prizing them apart or not sort of blinding ourselves to the fact that, well, you know, 61 years on from independence, India is still uh, sort of beset by the nightmare of, of caste violence, as I said, I mean, I was shocked to find that a figure like 18,000 um, incidences of violence perpetrated against the Dalits, the ground down lowest caste of India. And I hope that this work is a contribution to sort of at least understanding mm -hmm. the way in which that relationship works and what makes it fragment into violence. Okay, and do you have a title for your book yet? Um, working title, mm -hmm. Geographies of Justice, okay, colon, Caste and Violence in Colonial North India. And any um, 
estimated time of arrival? Um, Inshallah. <laughs> uh, by the end of uh, the summer, I hope I've okay. crafted the final chapters and then we'll see. Okay, wonderful. We'll see. Thanks very much for being with us, uh, with, with us here today. Thanks very much, Marilyn. Okay. It was a pleasure speaking Thank with you. you. For more information about Professor Rye and, of course, her um, research and newest book, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.